I'd like to read the text of the sermon, and it's found in Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. I'll read verses 12 through 26 of the first chapter of Philippians. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that, by, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then, what difference does it make? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will, remain, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. What happens to a man when you isolate him from his friends and take him from his work and you put him in prison and while he's in prison not able to defend himself, you spread false rumors about him. And then you hang the threat of imminent death over his head. What happens to a man like that? Well, the answer is in the man. You see, the thing that, does, that makes the difference is not the circumstances that surround us in life, but the person in the circumstances. It's not how we act in the good times that makes the difference. It's how we react in the bad times. Sometimes we'll ask God or say to God, if you'll just arrange favorable circumstances in my life, things that make it kind of easy, then I'll be able to handle this thing called living. Not in a million miles is that the real issue. The real issue is not in the favorable circumstances that surround us, but in how we live within those circumstances. And there is no better demonstration of that than the life of the Apostle Paul. 
I was listening the other day to um, a Dallas radio station, and they were advertising for uh, people to come and work at the, at the uh, state fair down at Dallas, which opens next week. And they said they needed um, ticket takers and, um, and uh, concession people and demonstrators. Now, you've seen those demonstrators at the state fairs, haven't you? I mean, they're on every corner. And they're demonstrating these things like knives, you know, that you can uh, do everything with, from shave to cut steel pipe. And uh, they've got all these things that they, um, they're using, and, and, um, and they're just showing you how it works. Well, that's exactly what God did with this apostle. He just kind of picked him up off the streets of Damascus, and he said, I just want to use you to demonstrate how a spirit-filled man faces unfavorable circumstances. I just want to use your life to demonstrate how everybody is to live the normal Christian life. And the Apostle Paul is not an exception, but an example. He is not some super Christian that God kind of holds out before us like a carrot stick, like a carrot on a stick, and says, this is a super Christian that's living an abnormal life, and I want you to try your best to live like that. He just holds the Apostle Paul up and his life for ages to come and says, this is the example of how everybody who is born again ought to live. And when you read the life of the Apostle, it's like breathing the rare air of victory. There's a note of victory in his life and triumph. There's no complaint or no panic. And he doesn't gripe toward God he just lives in this calm assurance that God is going to use him in a marvelous way. And as you read this text, it suddenly dawns on you, perhaps, that nobody is, is exempt from suffering regardless of his standing in life. For if there ever was a person who was qualified for special treatment, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet nobody ever gave up, sacrificed more for God than this man outside of Jesus. And nobody suffered any more than he did. And yet when you come to verse 18, you just kind of hear him exulting and saying, I know that I am suffering and imprisoned, but what difference does it make? What does that matter? And the secret of his life, I suppose, is found in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As a matter of fact, that's the theme of this little epistle to the Philippians, and it's the clue or the key to this man's victorious life. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And there are some things because of that that are worth suffering for. And he describes them. For example, it's worth suffering if by our suffering the gospel is extended. He says that in verse 12, by my suffering the gospel has progress. Now the book of Philippians was written in response to, a, to an inquiry from the Philippian ch uh, church, the Philippian Christians, and they sent Epaphroditus down to Paul's imprisonment, to Paul's prison house. And they sent this gift with them, this love offering, but really behind it all was this desire to know how's the apostle getting along? How's he handling these problems that he faces in life? And every indication is that they're expecting the worst kind of answer. Why, here's a man 
who's been, whose whole life is at spread of the gospel, is committed to serving God, and there he is in prison. As a matter of fact, the King James has the word rather. These things have happened rather to the furtherance of the gospel, indicating that what they anticipated the report to be was that the Apostle Paul had abandoned hope and he was down there in despair and depression. Well, when they came back, this was the report. Paul says that he's rejoicing in his imprisonment because in his imprisonment the gospel is extended. Why, Paul is saying, the attempt of the devil to stifle my message has become a fan in the, flame, in the hand of God to fan the flames of the gospel. And the word progress there is a word that means is the picture of a man going before an army and cutting out the underbrush. It's the picture of a pioneer who is going in some untraveled forest, an untracked way. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, my imprisonment is blazing the trail for the gospel's sake. And when a person is committed to that single-hearted commitment to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing can defeat him. Isn't it amazing that the things that hinder us in life in the hands of an omnipotent God can be used as a means to spread His Word. And the apostle describes how far that gospel has spread. He said, to the whole praetorian guard. Now you're familiar what that was. That was a group of 10,000 troops of the Roman legion, the elite, that were assigned to, the, to, the, to, to Nero's palace uh, the, the elite troops that were Nero's uh, soldiers taking care of the palace. And every four hours, one of, them, one of these men was assigned to go down and take the other end of the chains that bound the apostle and put it on his wrist. And two of these men stood outside the door. What a prisoner. And every four hours, the apostle Paul had a new prospect to work on. I can just hear these guys in the barracks saying, Have you had your duty with that goofy guy down there in prison? Why, he says that he's there for Jesus' sake. And that man is literally consumed with this person, Jesus. I wish I could know about him. And if you'll turn to the last part of the book of Philippians, Paul sends greetings to the people in Caesar's household. I mean, in Caesar's house, they'll believe us. Where'd they come from? From the praetorian guard out of the bowels of Paul's imprisonment. Isn't it amazing that the difficulties we run from, God wants to use to extend His gospel. It's worthy to suffer if in our suffering the gospel is extended. It's worthy to suffer if in the second place somebody can be encouraged by it. Now the Apostle Paul said, Some have gained new boldness because of my chains. Some have started preaching, speaking with boldness because of my imprisonment. They were watching intently what's going to happen to this man now. And when they saw his attitude in his chains, they began with boldness to preach. Now the word to speak there refers to the act of speaking itself. It wasn't that when they were preaching, they'd watered down their gospel and, 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 were, and weren't preaching with boldness. 
it, it means that they were not preaching at all. I mean, they weren't opening their mouths. They weren't saying a thing. But when they saw Paul's imprisonment, his chains rebuked their silence, and they broke the sound barrier, and they began to speak just with boldness and with power. He encouraged them. Has that ever happened to you? One day a young person came to talk to me in my study and said, You know, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I've tried to keep that a secret. She said, I've been under such peer pressure... And so I go to school and said, oh, I don't deny my faith, but I just don't say anything about it. But she called the name of this girl that was also a member of our church that was such a sweet and dynamic Christian. And she said, my friend takes this terrible flack at school, but she just kind of hangs in there. And she said, everybody abuses her and calls her goody two-shoes and all that kind of stuff. And so she's not, you know, she didn't uh, condemn anybody or judge anybody. She just lives out her Christian faith and bears her witness there at school. And he said, the other day I was just watching her take all of that abuse. And I said to myself, I'm no longer going to remain silent. I heard a guy speak one time in my church, a layman, came for a lay witness mission. Now, I'm pretty hard-hearted, you know. And, and sometimes it kind of takes a little bit to break through me to, to me. But that guy got up there and he just made this simple statement. He said, you know, most of us bootleg the gospel. You know what, what he meant? Well, he went on to explain. He said, we just kind of slip around. And, and, and if somebody we know is uh, uh, open to the gospel, we might share. We just kind of bootleg the gospel. He said, but you know what Jesus did? He took the cross right on his back and walked down Main Street. And we sat in our silence while he did it. And that word just pierced my heart. Somebody said that 20% of all the Christians in the church do 80% of all the church work. And some of them with tremendous sacrifice. Does their sacrifice not rebuke your silence and lethargy? There's a man sitting in this auditorium this morning who's a tremendous encouragement to me. I'm not going to call his name. I wouldn't embarrass him at all. But that man's heart, this man's heart has been broken a thousand times since I've been his pastor. And he's been in the fire. But I challenge you any time of the week, if you see him anywhere in the halls of this church or anywhere, he'll be whistling and he'll be singing and he'll have this dynamic smile on his face. And his suffering encourages me. As a matter of fact, on my desk this week was a little card left by this man just encouraging me. The Apostle Paul said, My suffering is worth it if in my suffering somebody's encouraged. My suffering is worth it in the third place. If in my suffering I gain a new and fresh awareness of salvation. Now that's what he says in verse 19. He says that he's going to experience in prison salvation is the King James. It's deliverance in the New American Standard. Now it doesn't mean that he's going to be saved from sin because of his suffering. That word salvation is translated King James salvation. doesn't mean that at all. 
And it doesn't mean deliverance in the New American Standard if you're thinking about he's going to get out of prison or delivered from bondage. It doesn't mean that either. It means spiritual well-being. It means, it means to be perfected. It means to be whole. That's what the word literally means, to be made whole. Now, this is what the apostle is saying. My suffering is worth it because in my suffering, I'm going to experience a new awareness of the Spirit of God. I'm going to experience wholeness as wholeness was to be. I'm going to experience what it really means to experience God. You know, sometimes God puts us in those kinds of places. The Apostle Paul had this thorn in the flesh... And he asked three times. That's a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't mean literally asked three times. It means that he kept on begging God to remove this thorn. And God said, I'm not going to remove that thorn, but I am going to let you know about my grace. And I am going to perfect you in that experience of suffering. And the Apostle Paul rejoiced, not because the thorn was removed, but because it wasn't. And in the experience, he was going to learn of God's amazing grace. Now that's amazing. I was reading about that and praying about it here a while back. And all of a sudden it dawned on me. Take a look at that statement in its context. For when God told the Apostle Paul that, it was right on the heels of this marvelous experience in which he was caught up into the third heaven. I mean, the Apostle Paul had an experience with God that nobody else ever had. He went to heaven and back. Now, how can you learn more about God than you'd learn if you went to heaven and back? Well, it's obvious that there are some things about God you'll never learn except through suffering. Watchman Nee says that only new, the only new things you'll ever discover about God and His grace is through ex the experience of suffering. There are some things you will never know about God unless you're placed in the experience of trial. So the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to rejoice in my suffering because there I'm going to discover something about God I would never know otherwise. And it was going to be made possible by two things. He, he mentions them here in the text. It was going to be made possible because of the supplication of the saints and the supply of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed how many times the Apostle Paul asked people to pray for him? It is obvious that he was dependent upon the supplication of the saints. Do you know anybody who is in trouble today? Do you know someone who is going through the fire, who has problems? Are you praying for them? What's going to happen to them if you don't pray for them? I was thinking the other day about some people, you know, that we kind of judge today who've kind of fallen by the wayside and we kind of cluck our teeth and kind of wonder what happened to them, how they got off the track, how they made mistakes. Maybe it was because you and I were not faithful to pray for them. And the psalmist said, I cannot tell why there should come to me a thought of someone miles and miles away with swift insistence upon my memory, unless there be a need that I should pray. 
Perhaps my friend just then has fiercer fight, some a more appalling weakness, a decay of courage, a darkness, some lost sense of right. And so just in case he needs my prayer, I pray. And he said, it's because of the supplication of the saints and the supply of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not sure if he's talking about the things that the Holy Spirit supplies are the, th- are the supply, which is the Holy Spirit himself, perhaps both. For the things that the Holy Spirit supplies are peace and power and, and wisdom, but he is himself both the gift and the source So the the apostle was saying, I know that I'm going to experience a fresh experience of salvation because the Holy Spirit within me is going to supply every need I have. And that's a marvelous discovery. Listen to me, friend. It's a marvelous discovery when you come to the time in your life where you're absolutely at the end of all of your abilities and you come to the end of yourself and you discover there that God is sufficient. Now notice the chronology of this. The supplication of the saints comes before the supply of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. The supply of the Holy Spirit in a person's life will be abundant or meager depending upon the intercession of the saints. Oh, what a ministry, what a responsibility, what a privilege we have in intercession. Suffering is worth it in the fourth place. If Jesus Christ, He said in verse 19 and 20, can be exalted in my life. Now when you study that word, it means conspicuous. He's saying, the suffering will be worth it all if Jesus is made conspicuous in me. What is the most conspicuous thing about you? I mean, when people get together and your name is mentioned, y'all are just sitting around in a party and your name is mentioned, what is the first thought that comes to the people mind that are there? What's the most conspicuous thing about you? Now the apostle says, it didn't matter to me if I have good health or bad, if I live or die, if Jesus Christ can be conspicuous in my life, can be exalted in me. There was a time when Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem and he did not destroy the city, but he did take away some of the main citizens out to captivity. Among those were Daniel and Ezekiel and the three children, Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know that marvelous story from childhood. And the record has it that they were told to eat certain things and they refused because it wasn't diet, on their diet. A religious diet. They were told to dress a certain way and they wouldn't do it. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar built this golden idol and put it in the center of the town and said, when the music begins, you bow down and worship that idol. They refused. And they threw them in the fiery furnace. And the Bible says that the king looked quickly in the fiery furnace and saw that they were not destroyed 
the hair wasn't even singed, and they didn't even have the smell of fire in their clothes. And when he looked in, he saw not three, but four. Now watch what the record says. He said, and the fourth was like unto the Son of the gods. And the only time that king saw Jesus in the life of those boys was when they were in the fire. Now before that, he saw them as kind of weird folks who didn't eat the same kind of food, dress the same kind of way, or bow down and worship the idols as the rest of them. But it wasn't until they were in the fire that he saw Jesus. Now what he saw there was not their stubbornness or their conviction or their beliefs. What he saw was Jesus. Now what the Apostle Paul means in this text is this. If I get in prison and get cut off from my friends and separated from my life work, and if they come and take my life, it doesn't matter as long as Jesus is exalted and conspicuous. What a commitment. The amazing thing is that God expects that same kind of commitment from each of us. One last thought, please. It's worth suffering if we are made equipped to do God's work. Now, verse 22, he says, I have this great desire to go to heaven, but I know I have a greater responsibility to you. I don't know what that says to you, but it says to me that even our good and worthy desires must be submitted to the Lord. Now, he wanted to go to heaven, but the Lord said, I'm not through with you on earth yet. I've got some things left for you to do here. For your life, its purpose and meaning is to minister life to others. And the suffering that the apostle experienced was not a means of getting him into heaven. Are you listening? It was a means of getting him into the earth more effectively. That's the way it always is to God's people. Suffering is the means of getting us into earth more effectively. For God said, when you're the weakest, I'm the strongest. When you're the weakest, you're the strongest. When you're the weakest, I'm the strongest. And so Moses was absolutely convinced he was qualified to do God's work. When, when Moses was convinced he could do God's work, God couldn't use him. Forty years later, Moses was convinced he was unqualified to do God's work. And that's when God used him. And at the point of his weakness became the place of God's power. Hemingway once said, Life breaks us all, and afterward some are strong at the broken places. It is oftentimes when we have experienced brokenness, the suffering, the trial, it is only then that God can use us effectively. Did you notice that God took 80 years perfecting Moses for just one little task? God's in no hurry. A lot of times He'll take a lifetime just getting you ready for one little job. It's when you're the weakest that God is the strongest. It's when you're bound in the prisons of life's experience that God often uses you most effectively.
Dwight L. Moody went to England to preach. And a guy came to listen to him preach, a reporter, and this was his, his analysis of what he saw and heard. He wrote just this, Mr. Moody has a high-pitched nasal voice, a monotone. He is horribly overweight, and he is generally rough in appearance. The revival went on in London, and God poured out His blessing upon Dwight L. Moody's ministry. At the end of that crusade, someone came to Dwight L. Moody and said, What is the secret of your success? And Dwight L. Moody said, What are they saying about me? And the guy said, quote, This is what they're saying about you. You have a high-pitched nasal tone, monotone, that you're horribly overweight and you are generally rough in appearance. And Dwight L. Moody said, that's the secret of my success. Do you want God to use you wherever you are? Do you want God to be exalted in your life? Have you yet made that total commitment of your life to the Spirit's control? Are you living out this kind of life? Stop chafing under the bad times and ask, you, ask God to make you different. For the real difference is not in the circumstances but in the person who is in those circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, our heart's desire and prayer to Thee today is that we can be useful and usable. And I pray, dear Father, that You will bless this Your Word, the example how a man is to live who is a Christian to ignite in us a fire of desire to be that kind of victorious reigning believing triumphant conqueror and I pray for this moment of invitation that the Spirit of God shall have his way in every heart for Jesus sake now would you look here, we have three kinds of invitations. The first invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. The scripture talks about lostness and separation from God. That Jesus Christ is our salvation. He's the only way to be saved that we're to put our faith, our trust in Him, to believe and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation. There comes a point of time where you must do that, repenting of sin. You look toward Jesus. You trust Jesus and Jesus alone. So our invitation is for you to come and trust Him. Only trust Jesus. 
The second invitation is for those of us who need to place our life in a fellowship of believers where we now live. It's called transferring a membership or by statement or whatever. To come and put your life in the life of the church. A college student or someone who has just moved by his work to Durant. To say we want to place our life here and serve God in this place. Or maybe someone who just needs a deeper relationship with God and a closer walk. To say the very things that I've resisted, I see are ways and means that God has been drawing me to a deeper commitment of my life to Him. We call that rededication of life. As God leads you this morning to make these kinds of public responses, we're praying that you'll say yes to Him. While we stand and sing, you come.